uh, stand with me now as we uh, read this morning's uh, scripture. This is Matthew 21, beginning at the first verse through 17. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, put them on, their clo- on, and their, on them cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, That is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of God. Be seated, please. One of the first things that um, you you notice in school that I remember was learning how to read, and um, it, it began. You remember you had the alphabet up around the top of the classroom, and then your teacher would take you to the library, and that was a big field event when you were a little bitty. You know, going to the library and go through all that. And back then we had the decimal, the Dewey decimal system. Wasn't that horrible? If you're ever, a, you know, ever had to do that, that was just terrible. Thank goodness we got rid of that. But we had to learn that, and eventually we thought we were learning it. And the fifth grade came along, and you had to do some uh, paper. I remember having to do my first uh, um, paper on Robert H. Goddard on rockets, and that was really cool for a fifth grade kid. And um, I had to go to the public library, and it was a big maze, and uh, it was intimidating, you know. That kind of just stayed with me anyway, and and through undergraduate, high school, undergraduate school, and then when I got into graduate school. And um, one of the first things we did at the seminary was we had the librarian come in, and he gave us a tour of the library. Once again, just like we did in the first grade. And this time, he began to show you the new congressional way of cataloging books, which was so much nicer. It just made so much sense. And he began to give you a book, and then he would open the book up, and he said, now how do you read a book? 
And was, so we thought, that, well, that's kind of silly. You know, we've gotten here to a master's level school, and you're going to ask us, how do we read a book? But it was very intriguing what he began to show us. He said the most important, or one of the most important things you want to look at is your publisher. He said, I never thought about that. So you look on who published your book. Because your publishers have a reputation. And that's going to show you a little inclination of where they're going in their own worldview of things and how what they publish, what they believe is worthy of public consumption. And on the same way, he goes, now go to the table of contents. He says, he want you to take you through that table of contents. And you start looking at it. He said, now read that. I'm going, man, who reads the table of contents? It seems so simple. And then you read it. He said, now the first thing you also want to do is you want to go to the index. So you flip back to the back. So we're looking at the index of all the people he's quoted in this book. I'm going, what's the point in that? I'm going to read the book. He says, now what I want you to see is who's important to this author? Or who is this author pulling from that's going to influence his writing and influence your reading of his writing or her writing? And in that same scenario with the table of contents, you begin to put together where the thesis of that book is going to be, what they're talking about, why they wrote the book, what motivated them to write the book. Was there a problem they're trying to solve? And then as you look through it, you begin to see a thesis begin to develop. And one of the quick ways to read a book is to count the number of pages in each chapter. This is a little secret. Don't tell anybody. But you count those number of pages in the, in the chapter with the most number of pages. You students, you young students, better be listening. The, if the most number of pages with a chapter, that's the most important chapter, usually. Usually. You'll find that the writer will put a great deal of effort in making their case. And that really becomes the meat of the book. And the rest of it kind of proves it out and, and solidifies it, clarifies it for you. Interestingly, the Gospels have been written very similarly. We've noticed, and I think in your study already, that these eight days that we've just begun in the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, which normally we read this scripture on Palm Sunday, but here we are beginning Holy Week. Those eight days make up approximately one-third of all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, would you think that that might be important? Say yes. Good. Good answer. That's right. And so here uh, is, I think, uh, uh, Jared, uh, I don't know who puts your things together there, but James Boyce, who uh, I got to hear Dr. Boyce preach uh, one of his last sermons, and uh, what a great man he is, uh, was, and his writings and his work has given the church a great deal of help. But he says, such is the case because these are the climatic events, not only of Jesus' life, but of all of history. They were planned from before the foundation of the world, and our salvation from sin and wrath depends on them. Our salvation depends on this. 
whole section of Scripture. Because here, Matthew is bringing together all of who Christ is. Not only who He is, but also what He has done. Now the key to that is always is what Jesus has done for you and for me. When you begin to look at these eight days, you begin to see that Jesus' ministry was approximately three years, we all know. Well, let's just call that 1,100 days. So if you take eight days, divide that by 1,100, you get 007. .007. I don't know if Ian Fleming knew about that, but I'm going to take it he did, and I think there's something really messianic about James Bond. I love James Bond, so maybe there's something good there. I don't know. I have to put that together. But to think that just those eight days are, are spent in three or one-third, 33% of all the Gospels, it's important for you and I to really delve into this and to know it and to learn it and to understand it because Jesus is coming into his messianic identity. Prior to this, really they didn't know. And truly... They didn't even know after the resurrection. They didn't understand. Right? We, we see that. And we see this, this messianic secret, if you will, as it's been called, being unveiled this morning. And here is Christ rides in on this little cult. You know? Because this, there was an expectation of the culture. I mean, you've got to understand you know how culture is. You know how our own country is and how history has shown us that uh, dictators take over when there's a lot of unrest. I mean, when Hitler came in, there was a great deal of unrest within Germany. There was an identity crisis of who they were. And here was somebody who just stood up and created this identity that people just clung to. It was horrible. Well, that could happen in a frenzy, if you will. And what was going on in Jerusalem here, right before Passover, there was a phonetic, or a, I'm sorry, um, um, a, a ecstatic belief and expectation that the Messiah was coming. This messianic fever, if you will. And so this Messiah that they thought was some great king, some great leader, Someone who is going to make things right. Finally, my man, you know, is going to be in leadership. Our party is going to be in control. Finally. So you see here, the Jews were becoming excited. Because no longer were they going to be under the rule of Rome. No more about Caesar. Who cares about Caesar? Now, our Messiah is going to control the world. And we're going to be with Him. And we're going to now be the race. We're going to be the influential culture. We're going to be who the world looks to. That's what they were thinking. You can easily identify with that, can't you? Certainly you can, especially when our country and our sovereignty is questioned or threatened. So here the Jews were a little 
misunderstanding. But the children cry out, Hosanna. And as Kelly said, you know, this is the, this cry for salvation. Save me. Hosanna, son of David. Directly referring to the lineage of Christ Himself. So now, the Jews putting all that together. They're understanding this is truly the Messiah, some of them were. Some of them were getting very excited about this. But who is this Messiah? Is He really some great leader? Is He someone who's going to take over the political and the economic future of, of all the world, of Jerusalem and everywhere else? Is this someone who's going to bring prosperity to us? And, 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 and a reputation of finally being God's people. Finally, we'll be first class. Finally. Is that who this Messiah is? Or is he someone different because he comes in on a colt? Now, during peace times, kings would ride on donkeys. And there was a peace about themselves. But now we have this colt who's never been ridden. And Jesus comes in as this prince of peace. And people begin to look at him and, and they begin to still you know, say, Hosanna in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. And even where Christ was perceived, however dimly, as the King Messiah, they never really looked at him as the suffering servant. Now that was not on their agenda, you see, because well, how does a leader become a... How can you be a suffering servant and be a leader and take over control? I mean, that can't happen. And we're going to take control. Trust me. My family for generations and generations and generations have eaten the dust of the Egyptians and the Romans. We're going to be in control. The suffering servant... Uh, it's someone else's misunderstanding of, of theology. They didn't really read Scripture properly. They don't understand who the suffering is going to be for. It won't be for us. We'll be, we'll be the rulers. We'll be at the top. You see, there's something about that for you and for me, maybe. We have this idea of what it means to be an American. We have this idea of what it means to live life in this world. What's success? You can be in Europe, you can be in Asia. It makes no difference what country or continent you live in. There are levels of success. We all know it. There are certain residences, areas that exude wealth, status. And that's what we look for. And that tells us, and that tells the world, we're successful. We've done well. We've done well because why? Our families are happy. Our families don't have trouble. My children aren't in, you know, detention. They're not in jail. My children don't have addiction problems. I don't have addiction problems. Everything goes well for me. That's, that's what we think the Christian life is about. Aspiring to. We want to aspire to this wealth and health. Ooh. That everything's just great. Is there anything wrong with succeeding? No. Is there anything wrong with making the top grades? No. Is there anything wrong with making money? No, not at all. You see, Jesus even takes us right in there, Matthew does, when Christ comes in, clean out the, the temple, 
too often we read this cleansing of the temple as a degradation of capitalism, and it's not. Jesus wasn't getting rid of people because they were selling pigeons, selling things. I want to ask you one thing. Has anybody ever bought a Bible? Has anyone here ever bought a cross? Maybe on a necklace? Maybe you've got a painting? Does anyone have any artwork that you ever bought that's Christian-related? Hmm. Are you contributing to the evil of the world by buying those things? Say no. No. What we have is this situation that Jesus throws these people out. And too many people say, well, they shouldn't be selling those things at church. I don't know, maybe not. But let me understand, let me explain to you and remind you that the sacrifice was essential to the worship. And the temple was, was the center of life. And so when we came and we sinned, when we came to temple that Saturday, we brought our, our sacrifice. The greater the sacrifice, the more costly. Was it a dove? Was it grain? Was it a bull? You see, and they were sacrificed on the altar. We no longer have an altar. We see we have a communion table. The altar, though, was used for that sacrifice. And all that sacrifice did was point you and me to the sacrifice of Christ Himself that was complete, that was sufficient. And so what it is, is that it is symbolizing His death. But it's also costing you something because you had to pay for it. So let me think. Jesus wasn't angry that they were selling those things. That was what His Father said you do. You're going to have to buy an animal or raise it. It's going to cost you money. Okay? But what was going on here? Why was Jesus so upset? Well, you see, he quotes in there also in Isaiah about this, um, my house is to be a um, house of prayer. Excuse me. So here we are. This house of prayer. What is this house of prayer? Because see, Jesus is saying, not only do you not understand what is who I am, is the Messiah. I'm suffering servant. But you also don't understand how wide my kingdom is. And that is who is being invited into it. Because you think it's just Jews. You think it's just those of the house of Israel, you know, of Abraham. Yet the reality is it's much greater than that. And that we're going to the, the new kingdom is going to include Gentiles and go, oh my God, Yankees in Atlanta. And so here we are, and, and that's what it's, we're looking at. And these people can't conceive of that. So go in your own mind. I mean, eunuchs were not allowed. They had to stay out in the court of the Gentiles in the temple. They couldn't come any further. Others, other Jews who were lame of some sort were not allowed in there. Proselytes were not allowed. Those who became Jews were not allowed in there to the center of the, Jew, of the temple. They were made to stay out. 
they were excluded in a little bit of way. There's just a little bit of, uh, you're a second-class uh, child of God. But Scripture doesn't say that, does it? It's just the opposite. And yet it's very hard for us to really conceive that because I'm going to ask you right now, is there anybody that you don't really look at as a Christian? Do you know anybody that you say, oh, they're not a Christian? I know he drinks all the time. I know he's got a drug problem. I know uh, she's got um, uh, gambling problems. I know she's, you know, whatever. She's got addiction. She has uh, sec- uh, eating problems, eating disorders. She can't be a Christian. Oh, they're not Christians. Their children are all in trouble. It's the third one to be thrown in jail. They're not a Christian household. You ever seen people that on the street and you say, they're not Christian? I don't want to talk to them. We have a way of excluding people, don't we? We do. We don't just exclude them by just how we appear. You know, you may have long hair, short hair. You may be neatly dressed. You may have just, you know, whatever. Kind of grungy look. Pants down, pants down. I can't see it. I'm not going to. But we look at those people and say, you know, they shouldn't wear their clothes like that. And we push them away. Don't misunderstand me. You may be right. Maybe you shouldn't wear your clothes like that. Don't push them away. Because Jesus is saying, I'm opening my kingdom to them. And you and I go, no way. No way. So somehow you and I need to understand this Messiah better. We need to understand who Jesus is showing us, who Matthew is showing us who Jesus is here this morning. We need to understand who this peace prince really is. We need to understand this whole idea, this philosophy of of including everybody of all walks and nations and races and beliefs. Because, you know, non-Christians, ooh, they're bad, right? Especially people of other faiths. We don't want to be with them. Who are we called to be with? Them. They better be your best friend. They better be the people you're knocking on the doors to and just having coffee with or, or asking, can I help you take your children to school? I know you're having trouble. Can, can I, I know your mother's sick in the hospital. Can, can we do some errands for you? You better be the first one at their door. So what is this house of prayer Jesus is hollering about? He says this den of robbers. You've turned it into a den of robbers. You see people think, well, yeah, you see those guys are trading those uh, dumb for too much money. They're making money. That's robbery. You shouldn't make money. That's not what he's saying. Think about what a den of robbers is. It's a den. Now what do you do in your den? I watch football. I sleep when golf comes on. I play golf. I don't watch it. But you got to look at it. Think what you do in your den. You, you have your friends come over, right? And you talk. And you visit. You, you feed people in your den. You, know, you bring snacks out, drinks. You have a good time. So now, Jesus is talking about a den full of robbers. Now, have you ever seen an old western you ever seen a bunch of robbers? They're always in some bar or something, or they may be in their hideout. Let's go to a hideout. What are they doing? 
They're just hanging out in the hideout. They're counting their money, right, from the last train they robbed or the last bank they knocked over. And what else are they doing? They're planning the next caper. That's all you do. You brag about what you just did as a robber, and now you're planning your next one. And that's what Jesus was saying was going on in the temple. In other words, follow me here. He's saying, as a child of God, you think you can just go sin, go rob, and then you're going to come to temple with your sacrifice and be made clean, and then you can go out and rob again. You're going to go out next week and do the same sin over again. Because you think there's some superstitious thing about coming here. And it's going to wash me clean. And I'm going to go do it again next week. I'll just go ignore those same people next week. It's all right. I'll just go do the same thing I've been doing that I know I shouldn't be doing. It's all right if I steal just a little more next week. Jesus forgave me last week. It's all right if I just, you know, look in that inappropriate page on the internet because Jesus forgave me last week. It's all right if I'm not nice, you know, to my employees or to my wife or to my husband because Jesus forgave me last week. Because I'm going to go do it again. That's what robbers do. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's what you've turned my Father's house in. It should be a house of prayer. And in a house of prayer, what are we doing? We're coming together. We're coming together in a house of prayer to not only just pray, but it's a lot like a bar. I love bars. I love good bars. You know, you've got good scotches. I'm a Presbyterian. I like single malt. Um, and um, I, I prefer, I, I like the bars when you used to get smoke in them, but now I understand you can't, so you've got to go outside. I understand that. Um, well, what happens in a good bar? Remember the TV show Cheers? Didn't you love the, the theme to it? Where everybody knows your name. Everybody's glad you came. When you come into that place, it's almost a, there's a, special feeling, there's almost a holy feeling when you're with friends and you begin to talk and you begin to drop your wall, you begin to share with your best friend how, you know, you're falling out of love. You begin to share with your best friend how you're scared to death um, that the cancer that you've just been diagnosed with is, is going to take you and your children are going to be all alone. You're able to tell your friends things that you wouldn't tell them anywhere else. You can be broken in a bar. See, you come to church. <clears throat> See, I'm clean. I've wore blue, blue jeans mostly when I come here. But, you know, I, I dressed up today. We clean up. So Jesus says, no, this is a house of prayer. And this is where you come. And you're authentic. You're real with each other. You pray for each other. You pray for those whom I've died for, because that's what Christ has done. And this morning, as Mike comes up, he will take you into the or Lord's Supper. Here again, we begin to learn what it means to forgive. 
Because truly, all of these things about a suffering servant, how do you become a suffering servant, not an unsuffering leader? You repent. You die to yourself. Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but I live because He lives in me. That's what the gospel is. Dying to ourselves. And dying to yourself means repentance. It means turning away from doing those things that gratify you and don't glorify God. If you heard me pray, at the end I said to, for, for His glory and for our joy. Well, that's the answer to the Westminster Catechism. First question. What is the chief man, end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So I stole it from John Piper. He says, for His glory and for our joy. Don't you love it? That is life. That's what God's calling you to, to support one another, to love one another, to support other people who are not like you, to support people who make you uneasy, to support people and have compassion on people who don't have compassion on you, to have compassion on people who don't have compassion on others, to give comfort where it's not warranted, to give comfort to those who don't deserve it. Because you and I don't deserve it. And He's died, suffered, paid for our sins, and resurrected because He defeated a lot of death. Life everlasting is given to us because of Him, not because of us. Never because of us, but because of Him. So unless you die to self, you see, you can't follow Him. That's really all he ever asked you to do. I'm sorry if you're a poor spiritual law person, but Jesus really only said one thing. He said, follow me. That's what he asked us to do. He asked us to follow him.